So then, let's start our Dhamma talk with the Namo Tassa. Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Namo Tassa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambodasa Let me begin this talk with an experience that happened to me in the beginning stage when I was practicing at Chamye Sayadaw's meditation center in Yangon, in Burma. One day when I left the dining hall, just before going down the few steps where I had left my slippers, all of a sudden I felt so utterly alone and abandoned. Out of nowhere, this feeling of loneliness and abandonment hit me and it hit me with full force. I was completely unprepared for this. Although I was practicing in the meditation center with many other yogis, meditators, Burmese and foreign alike, I could not help to feel completely abandoned by everybody and everything. So there I was standing on the edge of the stairs and this sentence kept going through my mind. Alone and abandoned in this vast world. Alone and abandoned in this vast world. It seemed as I had been separated from everybody else and that there was not a single person on this planet who could fully understand what I was going through. It was a very painful and distressing moment, but at the same time it revealed me a deep truth. If I wanted to become liberated or enlightened, I had to realize the truth myself. Nobody else could do it for me. No matter how much guidance I got from my teacher and no matter how much encouragement and inspiration I got from the other meditators, in the end I had to work out my own liberation. So this insight hit me so strongly that tears started to flow down my cheeks. And instead of going back to my room, as usual, to take my shower, I went 
straight over to the meditation hall and sat down on my mat and started to observe this feeling of loneliness and considering the fact that I had to work out my own liberation. So gradually the feeling of loneliness and abandonment faded away and they gave rise to a growing sense of trust in the Dhamma. Prior to that, during the past years in which I had practiced meditation, I had been experiencing small insights that seemed to be in line with the teachings of the Buddha and, more important, with that uh, there was a growing sense of contentment or happiness or peacefulness. And therefore, I realized that all I could do was just simply trust the Dhamma and continue to practice. Even if it seemed such a solitary and lone path, there was no other option. It was only later that I came across this passage in the Satipatthana Sutta. In the beginning and end of the Satipatthana Sutta, the Buddha said, This is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana, namely the four foundations of mindfulness. This is the direct path. This is the rendering of the Pali Ekayano Ayambikawe Mako. And most of the translators have translated it, this is the only path, or this is the sole way, meaning that it is an exclusive path. But in the context of the Sutta, it should actually be understood, as Bhikkhu Mori pointed out, as a path that goes in one way only, namely, this uh, only way that it goes is Nibbana, or enlightenment, liberation. And so it is a way that has no sidetracks, and it leads directly to the goal, to Nibbana. The side tracks, this can mean the jhanas, these are states of deep concentration where the mind is fully absorbed into the object. And these states of deep concentration, the jhanas, they give rise to 
happiness or bliss, unequal states of bliss and happiness. But this bliss or happiness is only temporary, as long as money is absorbed in the satchana. And so persons who practice the jhanas, they can easily be trapped in these blissful states without making any further effort to uproot the defilement. And then in the commentary to the Satipatthana Sutta, it is further explained that this way must be walked by one alone without a companion. And when I read this statement, immediately my experience in front of the dining hall came back to my mind. So this statement, one has to walk it alone without a companion. This statement is in no way contradictory to the statement that having good spiritual friends is the whole of one's spiritual life. Spiritual friends, Kalyanamitas and our teachers, they give us a tremendous support and guidance and encouragement on our path. But when it comes down to penetrate into the deepest level of the true nature, then we cannot uh, depend on the help of others, but we have to do it ourselves, alone. In that moment of realization, we cannot ask or depend somebody else to help us now, but we only can depend on the penetrating power of the Dhamma. So, to bring about these moments of penetrating insights, we have to prepare the ground accordingly to make, um, to give these insights a possibility to arise. And so, among the many conditions that act as a suitable conditions to make the mind soft, clear, pliable, wieldy, and focused is seclusion. So seclusion is one of the supportive conditions for insight, understanding, or wisdom to arise. There are two levels of seclusion. On the first level, seclusion means to live in a secluded place, away from people and away from sensual objects that cause desire and lust to arise. And this kind of seclusion is called kaya viveka. In the suttas, secluded places away from people 
are described as a place in the forest, a place on a hill, or in a charnel ground, or a cave, or in the jungle, or an open space, or a heap of straw. Then, on the second level, seclusion means the mental seclusion and detachment from sensual objects. This kind of seclusion is called citta viveka. And when I speak of sensual objects, this means all the objects that we perceive through the six senses. Objects perceived through the eyes, sounds, perceived through the ears, smell, uh, perceived through the nose, taste, perceived through the tongue, tangible objects perceived by the body, and mind objects, thoughts, emotions, fantasies, etc., perceived by the mind. So whatever object is perceived through the senses, this is referred to by sensual objects. So as long as we are enmeshed in the daily busy life of our uh, ordinary world, it is very difficult to bring about this clarity and collectedness of the mind which is necessary to give rise to insight or understanding. And therefore, we have to remove ourselves physically from the busyness of our uh, ordinary life. And we have to remove ourselves from the constant and all-pervading bombardment of sensory inputs. At the time of the Buddha, it meant to go to the forest, on a hill, into a cave, into the jungle, etc. Nowadays, going away, taking us away from the busyness of ordinary life, in order to meditate, we go to a monastery, or we go to a meditation center, like the place here. And so, when we leave our home to spend some time in meditation, it is very important that we have carefully organized everything and leave behind all our matters and concerns. So once on the retreat, we should not uh, engage ourselves in solving problems or sorting out things. So with the physical um, seclusion, uh, with the physical uh, removement from the ordinary life, we also should leave behind all these worldly concerns, problems, and matters. When I went to Burma to practice meditation in Chamye Sayadaw's meditation center. 
I still kept writing letters to my family in Switzerland or to my friends. Although the letters took a long time to reach their destination or letters took a long time to get to me, uh, or sometimes they never made it, <laughs> um, I still could not let go of this connection to the outer world. But then in the second year, when I was still there, um, I decided for the period of Vasa not to read any letters that I would get, with the exception of the letters of my parents. Because I had realized that every time I opened and read a letter, my mind got stirred up quite a bit, even if there were no disturbing or shocking news in the letter. But just the fact that I had this sensory input uh, kept my mind stirred up for a day or even a couple of days. And then I realized it also needed quite some effort to uh, bring the mind back to a calm, collected, and peaceful state. So, having gone through this experience and having realized how disturbing it can be, so then I made this determination not to read any letters for the three months of Vasa and just put them into my cupboard unread. And once I had made this uh, determination, then whenever I got a letter, it was not difficult just to take it and put into my cupboard. And when the three months of Vasa were over, I realized the beneficial effects of not feeding the mind with unnecessary input. At the time of the Buddha, the nuns and monks often went alone to such a secluded place to practice meditation. They did not practice together in groups, and as they are practicing alone or living alone in seclusion, they naturally kept noble silence. They refrained from talking. And so nowadays, when people go to a meditation center to practice meditation, it is important that the meditators keep noble silence, as we do here. Because each time when we talk, our mind is again stirred up to a more or less uh, stronger degree. Even if it was just talking some, about something very trivial, but just the fact that we engaged in a conversation uh, makes the mind more agitated. And so, 
if we keep talking, even if it's only a little bit, but every now and again, then it will be very difficult for the mind to settle down, to get concentrated and to become still. Jami Sayadaw put great emphasis on keeping noble silence because it is such an important and beneficial tool for the mind to settle and become concentrated. And he also uses to say five minutes of talking can destroy the concentration of a whole day. And for those of you who have some experience uh, in meditation, you know how true this is. For a beginner, however, this might not be so readily uh, obvious because it's difficult to keep noble silence because it's so unusual not to talk to others and so then, if that person talks to somebody, maybe to some staff, so being able to engage in a little conversation makes that person rather happy because being silent is so distressing. And so that person doesn't realize the ill effects of that talking. But that person also doesn't realize that talking a little bit every now and again is actually just perpetuating a deeply ingrained and strong habit. As most of us have grown up and live in an environment where one is talking all the time, or at least most of the time, it seems so unusual and challenging to abstain from talking. In our regular, ordinary life, how much do we value silence? Whenever I leave the meditation center, be it in Burma or be it a meditation center anywhere else in the world, it is so striking to me that when people take me somewhere or people take me to their homes, the radio is on or the TV is going or people even going shopping, they have to uh, listen to the music on their Walkman. So very rarely that I find people just being silent or having no external noise, music, sensory input around them. Or when people are together, most of the time they are busy talking away, busy chatting away with each other. It's very rare that people just come together to be silent with each other. Maybe except when they go to a meditation evening, they sit in silence for an hour or half an hour. 
because we have been brought up in that way, for many people, silence is a difficult thing to handle and it even becomes a threat. And so that's why they feed their mind with some music or any other sensory input just to cover that uneasiness of living or being in that silent space. So during an intensive meditation retreat, we are inevitably confronted with silence. So we can ask ourselves how easy or difficult is it for us to keep noble silence? How do we respond to this challenge of being in this silent space? Is it quite easy and natural? Or is it something quite difficult and maybe even driving to our edge at times? Venerable Tenzin Palmo, who is an English nun ordained in the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, lived and meditated for 12 years in a cave in the Indian Himalayas. Well, actually, during the summer months, she had to leave the cave, go down into the valley and collect food so that she could uh, survive over the winter months. But then, when it started snowing, uh, she was up in her cave, quite high up above the valley on a hillside, and there for about eight months of the year, she lived alone in that cave. Because once it started snowing, it was impossible to leave the cave and go down into the valley and nobody from down in the valley came up to her. So during these eight months she lived and meditated in her cave. There was absolutely no means for her to engage in any kind of communication. There was no telephone around. She could not just call her friend or her teacher. There was no means of sending a letter because she could not go down to the valley. The postman did not come up to her. And of course having no electricity no computer, no access to email or whatever and nobody would come to visit her up there. So in this way she lived completely secluded from other people and from other sensory input that could cause desire and lust to arise. And so there was no other way to face loneliness or silence than directly facing it. 
however big the temptation or the desire was to talk to her teacher or to call her friend, there was just no way to do it. So even um, if most of the meditators nowadays do not live in such a secluded uh, spot, still the attitude should be of going into total seclusion. So although we practice in a place where other meditators are around, and where means of communication are available, we should make the resolution not to engage in any contact whatsoever, be it with the meditators around us, be it with the staff, or be it with our family and friends at home. Because nowadays, where almost everybody has a handphone, the temptation is so big to just quickly check if there are any SMS or if there are any calls, or just to ring our family and say that everything is okay. So, you know, how um, big is the temptation? Not only just to sneak out of the room, go behind the building and do it. In one of the suttas, the Buddha said that when we are meditating or when we are uh, trying to follow the path to liberate us from the defilements, he said that one should wander alone like a rhinoceros. He took this comparison because the rhinoceros is a solitary animal. It doesn't live together in groups or herds. It just wanders alone in the woods, in the jungle. And on top of that, apparently the Indian rhinoceros has only one single horn. Apparently, the African rhinoceros has two horns. So, this imagery of this one of the rhinoceros with a single horn reinforces the notion of being all alone by ourselves. This sutta has the title Rhinoceros and it can be found in the Sutta Nipata, which is part of the Kutaka Nikaya. Uh, the suttas in the Sutta Nipata are all, for most of them, and most of the parts, in uh, verses, as poems. It's a very beautiful uh, sutta, and I'd like to read some of the verses. As a deer in the wilds, unfettered, goes for forage wherever it wants, the wise person, valuing freedom, 
wander alone like a rhinoceros in the midst of companions when staying at home when going out wandering you are prey to requests valuing the freedom that no one else covets wander alone like a rhinoceros because sensual pleasure elegant, honeyed, and charming bewitch the mind with their manifold forms, and seeing this drawback in sensual strands, wander alone like a rhinoceros. Cold and heat, hunger and thirst, wind and sun, horse flies and snakes, enduring all these, without exception, wander alone like a rhinoceros, eyes downcast, not footloose, senses guarded with protected mind, not oozing, not burning with lust, wander alone like a rhinoceros. So removing ourselves from the busyness of the world and going to a secluded place for a meditation retreat. This is the first level of seclusion. As I mentioned before, this is called Kaya Viveka. But this level of seclusion is not yet enough because our mind still finds ways and means to entertain and distract itself when faced with difficult emotional states. And so a further step is to restrain our senses, to restrain the sense doors, and especially our eyes. When the eyes are unguarded, then a lot of our concentration and mindfulness that we have built up in sitting or walking meditation can be lost through the eyes in no time. And on top of that, the sensory input that we get through the eyes, some uh, visual image, some visions, some forms or shapes or a nice sunset or a nice butterfly or bird, so this additional sensory input can cause new distraction or agitation in our mind. As it is said in the last of these verses, eyes downcast, not footloose, senses guarded with a protected mind. So to restrain our eyes and to keep them downcast can be a very helpful and beneficial support for our meditation practice. I also noticed that after uh, several months practicing in Burma and because I noticed the um, distraction that comes in by looking around. 
So then I resolved to restrain my eyes to the degree that I would always have been downcast looking at about two meters ahead of me. So I resolved not to look up into the distance or to the side. I did that resolve because for me it was extremely difficult to restrain my eyes and not knowing what was going on in my environment. I always needed to know who was sitting next to me or in front of me. And so I really felt that I wanted to overcome this strong and deeply ingrained force or habit. So with a sincere mind and with a strong resolution, I managed to restrain my eyes for the whole period that I did this resolution. I resolved it, I resolved to do it for three months. During that time, many times, I became aware of the strong desire to look up. For example, one occasion was always when I was in the, med in the dining hall. In the dining hall, we go to the table, to our assigned place, and then all the meditators would bow down to the front of the dining hall where Chamye Sayadaw and the other monks were sitting. And so, um, before I would start to bow down, I just would look up shortly to see if Chamye Sayadaw was there or not. I just needed to know whether he was there or not. After that, I could restrain my eyes again. And so, after I had made this determination, I just noted this strong desire to just look up for a second and to see whether he was already there or not. But I did not give in to that desire and I just did my three bows and then uh, sat on the table. Or other uh, occasions where from the dining hall going back to my room uh, I had to cross a little and quite narrow bridge which went over a water canal and so a few times it happened that when I was on the bridge walking slowly back to my room having my eyes downcast but because the bridge was so narrow then in the field of my awareness there would appear a pair of white sneakers and just I could see the lower part of the legs and mm -hmm. they were covered by jeans, pair of jeans so Burmese people don't wear sneakers, they don't wear jeans so I knew this must be 
a newly arrived foreigner. And again, previously I just had to shortly look up to see if it was a man or a woman, and just to see the face so that I knew who was new. <laughs> and so then, having done this determination, when this pair of white sneakers came into the field of my vision, I just noted desire, 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 and did not give in to look up. So, again, it was not easy to do it, but after the three months, I realized how much it helped to deepen the concentration to make the mindfulness sharper. If it seems too daunting to do such a resolve for three months, then you can do it for shorter periods of time. For example, you can resolve to keep your eyes downcast and look not around from uh, when you go from here, the meditation hall, to the dining hall. So that, that stretch, you have walked it already many times so far and now you should be quite familiar with it. So why not just once walk it without having to look once more to the side? Or in the walking meditation, if it's too daunting to do it for one whole session of walking, then start with something that you feel you can actually do. So maybe First, it's just to resolve not to let your eyes wander for one length of your walking path. So, when you, before you start walking, you do the resolution not to look up or to the side until you reach the other end of the path. And when you're able to do this, then maybe you can increase it. Maybe ne the next time you do it, it's for two lengths of the path, walking up and down. So, <clears throat> at times, it is good and beneficial to do something new and challenging because it can uh, open up new horizons for our practice. Unless we make the effort to do it, we cannot know the beneficial results or effects. Along this line of sense restraint, especially restraining your eyes, it's, there is another helpful tool for our practice, and this is to simplify and slow down our actions. Slowing down our actions and movements, such as getting up or dressing or eating 
or brushing our teeth, we are inevitably confronted with our strongly ingrained habitual patterns of moving quickly, of doing things without any awareness, without uh, having any presence of mind. And so the simple fact that we try to slow down a little bit these movements, get out of our uh, conditioning, only that effort brings more mindfulness into the present moment. And so even if we think that we are pretty mindful of our actions and movements, only when we slow down a little bit more do we become uh, aware that our mindfulness has actually been quite superficial, not really deep and precise. Because only then do we start to realize that we are actually doing several things at a time. For example, only then do we start to realize that even while we are chewing our food, the hand is already gathering the next spoonful of food. Or when we are approaching a door, being mindful that we are walking towards it, maybe observing left, right, left, right, left, right. Then, when we finally are in front of the door, we all of a sudden become aware that our hand is already lifted up here without us having fully conscious doing it. So, <clears throat> when we are slowing down a little bit, then first of all, we start to become aware that while we are actually still chewing, our hand is already gathering the next spoonful. Or then we start realizing that while walking, we are already lifting our hand. And so then, with that increased awareness, we could bring the chewing to its end and then first swallow the food. And only after we have completed the swallowing do we start uh, getting the next spoonful of food. When I was young, I was very good of doing many or several things at one time. And so my mother reminded me every now and again by saying, one after the other, like in Paris. It was just a saying in our Swiss language, Eis nach am wird Paris. Uh, one after the other, like in Paris. 
I don't know where this saying comes from or what it actually means, but this is what I had to hear very often. Anyway, it is good and helpful to do one thing at a time. Just chewing the food when we have the food in the mouth. When we are swallowing, just doing that. Be fully with that sensation of the food going down our throat. Maybe feel it until it reaches the stomach. When we practice vipassana meditation, there is nothing more important than to stay fully present of what is happening. So when swallowing the food, this is the most important thing in the world. At that moment, nothing else matters for a yogi. And Doing one thing after another is also very conducive for deeper concentration to arise and for mindfulness to get sharper and more penetrating. Because actually the mind can only attend to one object at a time. The mind or consciousness, as I explained last night, at one given time it can only be aware of one object. Because, for example, when you are seeing something, this is seeing consciousness which perceives the object, because at that moment only seeing consciousness can arise. It's not possible that at the same time also hearing consciousness is present. Only when the moment of seeing consciousness has disappeared can another moment of consciousness arise. Maybe that's hearing consciousness, hearing some sound. And so only when we pay full attention to one object, can the mind, the consciousness, uh, fully be with that object and then clearly perceive it, recognize it, understand it. When we have the impression that we actually can be aware of a visible object and hear sound at the same time, and be aware of some touching sensation that only seems so because these moments of consciousness they arise and disappear with lightning speed it's really so fast within one moment like the snap of a finger Billions and billions of moments of consciousness arise and disappear. And so, because that happens so fast, let's say there is one moment of seeing consciousness which perceives the table, and then that disappears and the next moment is 
maybe the moment of hearing consciousness, hearing the birth, and that disappears, and the next moment is the touching sense consciousness, being aware of this hard surface of the table. So, because these different moments of consciousness alternate and arise with such great speed for our ordinary consciousness, uh, our ordinary perception, then it seems as if like three things are happening at the same time. So, when we restrain the senses, especially our eyes, and when we slow down our actions and movements, then we come to see that these different movements and actions of the body or parts of it, that they arise because of an intention or a desire to perform this movement. All bodily movements have their origin in the mind. A movement is always caused by an intention. Without an intention, we wouldn't lift the arm, we wouldn't make a step, we wouldn't blink the eye. And so it's only with the restraint of the eyes and uh, slowing down of the movements that we also get some indication of how much we are actually aware of our mind. For example, when we happen to stand in front of the door and our hand is already holding the door handle, then this means that we have also missed to realize or to see the intention that caused this hand to lift. Or each time when we are chewing the food and um, after having it swallowed down, when you realize that you are already holding the glass of water, then we get an indication that we missed to notice the intention that gave rise to the stretching out movement of the arm, of the hand. So, observing the movements is not only done to um, see the movements more clearly and just to stay with observing bodily phenomena, but actually through this we also come to realize and understand mental phenomena, the intentions that give rise to these movements. But because mental phenomena are arising and disappearing so much faster and because they are more subtle, it's more difficult to see them, to observe them. And so, in the beginning, until our mindfulness and concentration is good enough, 
we should start with that which is more obvious and easier to note. These are the physical movements. Movements, actions of our body are quite obvious and core, so the mind can follow it, observe it more easily. And then, when our practice deepens, then automatically we will be able to observe and note the more subtle objects, namely the mind, mental processes, intentions, and so forth. So, when we manage to live in a secluded place and restrain our senses from sensory input, then uh, we will get citta viveka, the second kind of seclusion. And so this is the mental seclusion from sensual objects, then the mind is quite detached, secluded from these objects. Again, Venerable Tenzin Palmo, she points out the fact that the second level of seclusion is much more important than the first one. Even if we live in a cave, alone for 20 years or even for all our life, if we cannot detach ourselves uh, from the attachment to or craving for sensual objects, then living alone in a cave does not serve the purpose. She said, through renunciation is giving up all our well-cherished thoughts, our delight in memories, hope, and fantasies. To renounce all this and stay naked in the present, this is true renunciation. And this is in line with what the Buddha said to one of his monks. That particular monk was um, a so-called lone dweller. He lived alone in the forest. And so a group of monks reported that to the Buddha. And so then the monk told the monk, so the Buddha told the monk to go and call that monk who was dwelling alone. When that monk arrived where the Buddha was staying, he sat down and paid respect to the Buddha. And then the Buddha asked him if it was true, if he was a lone dweller, and that he delighted in dwelling alone. And so that monk said that it was true. And then the Buddha wanted to know how he practiced it. And so then the monk said, I enter the village alone for arms. I return alone. 
I sit alone in private place and I undertake walking meditation practice alone. It is in such a way that I am a lone dweller and that I delight in dwelling alone. So then the Buddha said that this indeed was a way of dwelling alone but then he continued to explain how dwelling alone could be fulfilled in greater detail. And so the Buddha said, he said to this monk, listen and attend closely to what I say. What lies in the past has been abandoned. What lies in the future has been relinquished. And desire and lust for present forms has been thoroughly removed. It is in such a way that dwelling alone is fulfilled in greater detail. So we can ask ourselves, can we give up all our well-cherished memories about the past? Can we stop indulging in fantasies about the future? Can we remove our desire and craving for present sensual objects? We all have probably experienced it for ourselves that when the mind is deprived of the usual sensory input, then it starts to go berserk and then the mind is trying to compensate with all different kinds of thoughts. So any kind of thought is good enough to fill this vacuum in the mind. So then the mind comes up with the most unlikely fantasies about the future or it digs far into the past and is indulging in memories or it just grabs on to any trivial thought that is floating on the surface of the mind. When the mind is deprived of the usual sensory input, any thought, anything is good enough to feed on it. Also this happened to me after several months of intensive meditation um, in Burma. Just being faced with all the same things day in and day out and just lifting, pushing, dropping or rising, falling or thinking, thinking or chewing, chewing, chewing. My mind got really desperate for something new, something a bit different. But I did not talk to others. I did not read books or whatever. But 
what I discovered was reading the ingredients of my toothpaste was such an exciting thing to do. <laughs> I mean, in ordinary, ordinary life, under normal circumstances, who delights in reading the ingredients of your toothpaste? <laughs> After several days of getting bored with that, uh, my mind was looking for something else. And at that time, I had to share a room with a, a lay woman, lay meditator, and because she had hair, she used shampoo. So then her shampoo bottle <laughs> became the biggest delight, just reading ingredients of the shampoo. So it is only with the abandoning and removal of these kinds of sense inputs that we can speak of a secluded mind, citta viveka. A secluded mind is, for example, a mind absorbed in the jhana, because then the mind is not dwelling on any thoughts and the mind just stays on this one object. So that uh, mental seclusion during the jhana is a temporary mental seclusion. But as soon as the person comes out of the jhana, then the mind is assailed again by many different kinds of thoughts. So, during the practice of Vipassana meditation, when we try to be mindful of the objects, whatever they are, so then we are uh, mindful of it moment to moment to moment. And so, with that, we get a momentary concentration which is similar to uh, a jhana concentration, similar in a way that it can keep out the thoughts. Then the mind is just uh, concentrated on the rising and falling or some painful sensation from moment to moment to moment to moment and no thoughts have the opportunity to enter the mind. So then, at this moment, in Vipassana meditation, the mind is also secluded from thoughts about the past, the future, or the present. And later on, when the power of insight becomes really strong and penetrating, then it has the capacity to uproot certain defilements at the moment of an enlightenment experience. There are four stages of enlightenment. So each time then certain defilements are, um, are completely cut at the root and 
they never can arise again. And so, with the attainment of the fourth and last stage of enlightenment, then all the defilements have been completely cut for once and forever. And therefore, the complete, perfect and final seclusion of the mind is Nibbana. Then, no more disturbing thoughts about the present, the future or the past. Then the mind has reached the final and uh, complete seclusion, citta viveka. Nibbana, or final uh, full enlightenment, is a state when the mind is completely free from all the defilements, or from greed, hatred, and delusion. So, I want to end this talk with the words of a deva who approached a monk practicing alone out in the jungle. The deva realized that the monk was overcome with unwholesome thoughts which were connected with the household life. So, out of compassion for the monk and to arouse a sense of urgency in him, the deva approached him and addressed him with these verses. Desiring seclusion, you entered the woods, yet your mind gushes outwardly. Remove the desire for people, then you will be happy, devoid of lust. You must abandon discontent. Be mindful. Let me remind you the way followed by the good. Hard to cross, indeed, is the dusty abyss. Don't let sensual dust drag you down. So, may all of you, by practicing Vipassana meditation, be able to uproot all the defilements and attain the complete and perfect seclusion of the mind. May all of you reach Nibbana. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.